Anchor, Anchor, how we doing? 10.30, we doing okay? We doing good, we doing okay? Yeah, doing good, doing good, doing good. Hey, um, you know, John mentioned uh, the situation happening in Ukraine um, already. Um, you have seen it on the news and in the news feed, but right at the top of the teaching, I just wanted to take some time just to share a prayer that we already have written. It's on social media, but just to pray that uh, as a community together and then invite you to go to uh, the place on Instagram or Facebook where we have this, go to the Ukraine post, you know, go to swipe to the next one, screenshot that, tuck it away in your phone as a prayer to pray when you don't have the words because there's going to be times where it's like, I don't know what to think. It's so far away. Um, or maybe you have friends and you're feeling it over in an overwhelming way, but you don't know the words to say. So just tuck this prayer away. Go to, go to Instagram, screenshot it, tuck it away in your, in your photos and uh, use this when you don't have the words. Um, so I'm just going to read this. It's kind of a mix of reflection and prayer. You go ahead and close your eyes. Take a deep breath because we need to take a deep breath in a moment like this with situations like this and hear these words. To grieve and to hope is the work of maintaining our humanity in the face of the world's evil. So today, Lord, we grieve with the Ukrainian people. We lament that this world is one where war is common and long for the day where swords will be driven into plowshares. We also plead for prayer or in prayer for justice and righteousness for the people of Ukraine. But we are not those that grieve without hope. We cry out the ancient prayer, come Lord, come to aid those in need of escape. Come to bring justice to those executing evil and destruction. Come with wisdom to those making decisions. Come with comfort to those suffering loss. Come. Bring seen and unseen your kingdom. Help us to listen to you for ways that we might partner, even if those ways feel mustard seed small. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's be a community continuing to pray words like that and those words in a situation like that and to be matching those words of prayer with uh, generosity and creativity um, as we find out we do have friends that have family there in Ukraine because no doubt many of us will find that out even in the next couple weeks. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Let's be people mobilized in prayer and action. Hey, as John mentioned, we are in the last week of this teaching series, Exiles. And one thing I've been thinking about is like the idea, this is the principle of last words. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like the last words somebody says in their life or the last words somebody says, you know, in a book or in a poem or in a movie. We somehow try to like figure out, like we assume that there's like this distillation of all of the wisdom in their life, the meaning of the movie, the best line of the poem. It's somehow we expect the last words to somehow summarize that. Um, so some of the last words maybe that you're familiar with throughout history that are most famous um, are Leonardo da Vinci's first. His last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Does anyone want to say chill, Leonardo, chill? <laughs> you changed civilization. Can you just be content? God is not asking any more of you. 
Harriet Tubman, uh, the abolitionist and uh, really catalyst for the underground slave trade, who passed away in 1913. For me, I'm like, wow, that feels, even though it's like I wasn't born then um, by a couple decades, uh, but it feels still kind of like, wow, that was just the previous century. She said, with her family gathered around her, swing low, sweet chariot, echoing the song. According to Steve Jobs' sister Mona, the Apple, Apple founder's last words were, oh wow, oh wow, oh wow. Who wonders what he was seeing? Revivalist and founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, on his deathbed trying to recite Psalm 46, but unable because of the frailty of his body, was able to say, I'll praise, I'll praise. Last words. You can make an argument that the last words of a person's life, you know, maybe wouldn't have the level of import or significance that the last words of a letter might have. The last words of a letter, you know, you can do, you can utilize the full arsenal of, of exclamation points and underlining, highlighting, all capitals, curving around the edge of the paper. Anybody ever do that? Curving around the edge of the paper, I need to get those words in. The last days of a life, the last words, there might be a limits of energy, but with the letter, you can let it all pour out. You can make sure everything you need to say is expressed on that page or in Peter's case, that scroll. And so it's right for us to like anticipate something of significance here in these last words from Peter. And uh, these last words that he's about to, we're about to look at, talk about this theme of anxiety and opposition, anxiety and opposition. For many of us, the idea of anxiety has been, or the reality of anxiety has been something we've experienced on a visceral level uh, the last few years, or maybe for a long period of time, maybe more recent, but no doubt in a room like this, there's many of us that have wrestled in serious ways with anxiety. Anxiety, it should be said, is not something that just affects women or old or men or young, or it affects all of us on different levels and shows up in some of our lives in different ways. So it, some of us might say, I've never wrestled with anxiety. Well, our spouse or our family member or friend might say, well, then tell me why you did this in this situation. Anxiety and opposition. We'll be talking about uh, not just opposition that we might feel as we are trying to look forward and go forward in our life with our plans, but like actual spiritual opposition. And so we're not going to be able to cover all of the details for that. So we're talk I have a, a white paper we developed on spiritual warfare that um, it's going to be on the info desk as you walk out. There's 50 of them, and I forgot to mention it during the first gathering. So um, I know all of them are there except for this one. So go ahead and make sure to get it. It's able to to go in more detail than we're able to talk about it here today. We're calling today's teaching, Rest My Anxious Heart. Rest My Anxious Heart. Might be a prayer you just tuck away. Rest My Anxious Heart. So we're going to start um, in verse 5, coming back to the first five verses of chapter 5 at the end. Um, but the first point is pride and anxiety. You wouldn't think that pride would be linked to anxiety, um, but I'm going to make an argument in some ways, in a critical way it is. Verse 5, it says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. 
Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Those first words, humble yourselves. The word humble in Greek um, and in Latin, it means to lie flat. So Bible scholars looking at that word understand it to mean it means more than just lie flat. It means really to kind of like to be close to the earth. It doesn't mean earthy, like you get like patchouli oil, you know, or whatever. That's not what it means. But it means to recognize that you came from dirt, according to Genesis 1. You were fashioned from the earth and you will return to dust, as it says in Genesis chapter 3. Rather than a grim message of kind of like, wow, that sounds grim. It's actually a message of reality. Of the reality of our limits. In fact, in Ash Wednesday, here Wednesday, the whole principle of Ash, the marking of Ash, is this, this idea of recognizing as we journey through Lent the limits of being human. The idea of humility, just as like a principle, it actually has not always been a virtue. Before Jesus, the teachings of Jesus and the way of Jesus came forward, the Roman and Greco, the Greco-Roman world saw humility actually as a vice. It was something to be avoided, something to be ignored, not something to aspire towards, but Jesus was the one who actually communicated that it was a virtue. It was something to aspire towards rather than to ignore. So Christianity is uniquely connected to this idea of humility. And Peter says, humble yourselves. Recognize your limits. Recognize, you know, that we are not limitless, that we are not God. How this connects to anxiety is, becomes clear on the next uh, part of the verse where it says, under God's mighty hand. You see, only God's hand has the ability to hold the weight of the future. I don't know what you hear when you hear mighty hand, but for some of us with kind of visions of God that aren't totally what scripture says, we might think of a, a vengeful God or a catastrophic God bringing some type of calamity upon creation. But the idea of God's mighty hand is something connected to God bringing deliverance to his people. So what is being communicated there in this passage is that as we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, he will deliver us from anxiety. Now, not simplistically, not instantaneously all the time, though sometimes that happens. But here, let me express this. In, in pride, we think that we can carry the weight of the future on our own shoulders. We look at forward to all the questions that we have, whether financial or around our family, whether around friends or around our vocation, and we get weighed down by them we, and by carrying them on our own shoulders. So what Peter is saying, he says, in humility, extend the weight of the future to the one who has the mighty hands. Take the questions, take the doubt, take the stress, take all of the different things that you're wrestling with that keep you up at, uh, up at night. Take all the, the, the things that, you're, that are keeping you from experiencing joy and say, God, you are the one with the mighty hands. You are the one that has the power to save. You are the one that knows the future. I don't know the future. I am limited. You are limitless. Here is what my concerns are. And he goes on and says, that he may lift you up in due time. I think this is incredibly important for us to understand because, you know, in due time, one, God's heart is for you to rise up. 
God's heart is not for you to be cast down. It's for you to rise up. He wants to lift you up. He wants to, he wants to have you walking and moving and engaging and living and experiencing joy, flourishing. God does not want depressed disciples. He wants people enlivened and filled with joy, mobilized towards mission, getting, growing in their gifts. He wants you rising up. That's what he wants you to experience. Not just as a general thing to think about like, oh, God wants me, but you, you. If you're finding yourself being cast down, God wants to take his mighty hands and raise you up. But that second part of the verse is important for us to understand in due time, right? Sometimes the journey through anxiety of us daily taking the weight of the future and giving it to God, sometimes it's a moment by moment journey. Sometimes it doesn't feel like we even have the capacity to do that. We have to get friends and family members to rally around us to help us take that weight that we're carrying and extending it back to God. There's this process of in due time. Sometimes, sometimes it takes a community at person, a person journeying through anxiety, that long season working with community, in community for them to find their way through to the other side. Sometimes it takes God using a therapist who understands how the brain works and expending years or months helping a person wrestle through some of these neural pathways that have formed around anxious thoughts and, and it's, it seems inseparable from the soul. Sometimes it takes a long time for a therapist, God to use a therapist to help bring a person out of that anxious spot. Sometimes it takes practices, like just even reading a verse like this. You find yourself experiencing uh, anxiety. You say, I'm gonna humble myself. Take a breath under God's mighty hand. Take a breath so that he might lift me up in due time. And sometimes, not that that solves all the problems, but just a practice like that can be formative in the journey through a season of anxiety. It goes on saying, cast all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. The idea of anxiety, it's different from fear if you, haven't, if you haven't heard that before. Fear is more like what I experienced going through an intersection a couple weeks ago where, you know, these terrible intersections in Tacoma where no one knows who's going. And so everybody just speeds through it, I guess, hoping that they don't get hit, right? Who, you've been there. Have you been there? Yeah, some of you have been there. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was going, and I think it's the one that go north-south that have the right-of-way, the ones that go east-west, yield. Is that right? Anyways, if I'm wrong, don't tell me. Um, so I'm going, and then uh, there's another one. There's another car that's going the other way, and, uh, and, and both of us uh, stop only at the risk of collision. Uh, I didn't see him coming. I think he saw me, so it's all his fault. But that was fear. That was coursing through my body as we, as we narrowly avoided an accident. But it was anxiety the weeks after that made my heart race when there wasn't a car there, but I just happened to be driving through the intersection. Anxiety is the nebulous, vague concern of a fear attaching itself to your experiences and sometimes even to your soul. Fear is the concrete picture of something happening in real time. And Peter's saying, humble yourselves, take the things you can't control and give it to the one who is in control. Cast all your anxieties upon him. Why? Because God cares for you. Think about this. 
the one who made the world cares for you. It's hard for us to understand that. He cares for you. He's moved to compassion when he thinks of you. He's not far off from you. I have to remind myself sometimes, these are not just theological categories. This is actual experience. This is real. This is reality. In New York City, there's um, two sculptures, interestingly, across the street from each other. One is this. It's of Atlas straining under the weight of the world. If you know Greek mythology, Zeus consigned Atlas to carry the weight of the world as a punishment. Um, But here in uptown Manhattan, it's a picture suggesting human strength, ironically missing the whole point of the Greek myth. Um, But right there amidst skyscrapers in a city that's oriented towards human advancement and human strength, in the center of that, in uptown Manhattan, here's Atlas showing seemingly what humans can do in the wake and the the shadow of a skyscraper. Rambo-like muscles bulging out there. But across the street is a different picture. If you walk into St. Patrick's Cathedral, a building not built to advance and to show human capacity, but rather divine strength and beauty. And if you walk towards the end of the sanctuary, you see a sculpture not of Atlas carrying a massive world and being broken and brittle because of it, rather a child. And you look close, and the child has a blue circle, a blue globe in his hand, And if you stare close enough, you realize it's the Christ child holding the world easily in his hand. And it's almost like we're through accident given two options. We can go the way of Atlas, trying to carry the weight of the world, thinking that we can do it, forgetting our humility and our humanity. Or we can go towards the Christ child, the one who can carry the weight of the world even as a child and relieve the burden that we have no right carrying. Which will you do? Peter is counseling us to take those things that cripple us and give it to the one who can heal us. Again, I do not want to be simplistic saying this is an instantaneous transaction like you do at Fred Meyer at the cash register. This is a month-long, week-long, year-long journey in community and in prayer with practices and sometimes a therapist, depending on the level of severity of anxiety. But it is a, this is the actual transaction that happens through that period of time, in due time. We give the things that weigh us down to the one who can take them from us. As we go on in the passage, we're going to this next point, which I'm calling opposition and anxiety. This is where we talk about spiritual warfare. If you're new to Anchor, welcome. Um, Opposition and anxiety. Verse 8, it says, be alert and of sober mind. He's saying, stay awake, pay attention, look alive. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. 
Peter is writing to these people that are experiencing, you know, maybe they didn't get the job advancement. Maybe they're being kind of outcast by their family because they're followers of Jesus. And he's saying, hey, you know what? The enemy is actually opposing you. When you so when you think it's just sociology that's happening, sometimes there's actually a spiritual component connected to it. And for us, in our predominant way of thinking, this is kind of new. Even if we believe that there is this spiritual reality where God and the devil are in this kind of war and this opposition, it's kind of not how we typically go about our day, right? What I want to say is, is that every age and every culture has its own biases. So for instance, if we looked back 700 years, uh, we might think there's a cultural bias towards what we could call superstition, meaning that if there's some inability that I have to explain the world, we would just fill in the gaps and call it magic, right? And now, in our present age, it wouldn't be superstition, but it would be what I would call scientism, meaning that we think all of reality is only what can fit into a test tube and be tested with the scientific method. Both are wrong. Scripture, rather than scientism and superstition, points to what I'm calling just reality, that there is a God in heaven and he is opposed by the enemy and he is, the enemy is defeated but is still active. And this is just the spiritual world that is overlapping sometimes with this physical world. And this is what Peter is talking plainly about. And again, we do go into more depth on this in the white paper that you should take so that all 49 of them are gone by the end of the gathering. But here's some ways that this is connected to this theme of anxiety again. You see, one of the primary ways the enemy wants to work is through what's called accusation. In fact, if you go to Revelation chapter 12, you'll hear the enemy described as an accuser of the family of God. What does it mean to accuse? It would be if someone came to me and said, Brian, I know that worst thing that you did at that one time and, the, and, you, and they connected that one thing that I did at that worst time, everybody's so interested now, to my very identity. You could think of an inverted triangle where, where this is all of who you are, all of how God's made you. You're gifted. You have these passions. You're interested in this. You've got this family. You've got this socioeconomic status. You've got this, you know, history, you know, genealogical, whatever. You've got all this stuff of who you are. And what the enemy wants to do is reduce you to this one sin. So you feel worthless. And when you walk in accusation, it's very hard to build relationships. In fact, sometimes it's very hard to walk into a room when you walk in accusation because you see people that you feel like must be condemning you because that's the front thing on your mind. It's like you can't get the playlist of accusation out of your head. You don't know how to hit pause. This is one of the predominant ways the enemy will work. Sometimes we do a pretty good job even by ourselves, and the enemy is just like, good, I've got that one managed. I don't have to engage much there. But while the enemy accuses what does Jesus do? He advocates. First John calls Jesus our advocate. And it's interesting, both terms are, are ones that would be used in the, in the legal world of, of that when scripture is being written. So we have the accuser who would be opposing a defendant. And we have an advocate who is advocating for a defendant. And so while the accuser would say, here's some evidence I bring to the court, the advocate would say, it doesn't stick. They're a new creation. This is what Jesus does. 
They are not the soul. Um, they are not that one thing. They are loved by me. They are bought by my work on the cross. They, are new, they have a new identity. They are the objects of my undying love, the recipients of a grand inheritance. You can bring anything you want. It's not going to stick. I'm the advocate. And when we have the voice of the advocate as larger and louder than the voice of the accuser, we can walk in freedom. Isn't that how it works? The thing is, is that sometimes we need to learn how to hit pause on the voice of accusation because it's been playing for such a long time. We need to set the new playlist, the one of the advocate. And some, some of us, we just need to remind ourselves, rest my anxious heart. Don't you know that you are loved? Don't you know that nothing can stick in the court of heaven against you? And so the court of man means nothing. Don't you know that you are the object of such a rich, rich inheritance that, that, that nothing can be compared on, in earth to the riches that you've received in heaven? Don't you know that? And we need to get that playlist playing louder than the voice of the accuser if we're going to be moving towards, away from opposition and anxiety, and into freedom that Christ invites us towards. I, again, do not want to be simplistic. This is not something that happens instantaneously. In fact, many people have kind of like said, well, I tried religion, so I'm going to, and it didn't work. I'm going to go try something else, like drinking or whatever. Let me just tell you, if that's what you're looking for, it's, you know. The journey with, towards freedom is a journey. It's a journey. It's not, a it's not an Amazon Prime transaction. But it's the same thing. It's what I'm, it is what I'm saying. It is taking the weight that you have placed on your shoulders and giving it to God in humility. It is letting the voice of the advocate be louder and, and, uh, than the voice of the accuser. Another way that enemy works is through attack. Um, and I love this verse, or this, sorry, this quote from a, a theologian, um, theologian and historian, uh, Richard Lovelace. He says, in folk religion, the posture of the Christian towards fallen angels is defensive. In scripture, the church is on the offensive and blows it receives from Satan come from a retreating enemy. You get that? In folk religion, the posture of the church is um, towards, towards fallen angels on the defensive. I'm protecting myself. I'm cowering away in fear. In scripture, the church is on the offensive and the blows it receives from Satan come from a retreating enemy. I was talking to somebody recently who felt like their family was kind of being spiritually attacked and there's no reason to doubt that maybe it, that, that it was actually happening. So we're praying and we're talking through some things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I prayed at one point, it stuck in my head, I, I prayed, I, I asked that God, that, that God would help my friend realize that he is so much stronger than the enemy that when the enemy attacks again, he would have the confidence to laugh. Do you get that? There is this lie that there's these two equal powers, Satan and God. But in scripture, Satan is defeated and he's running away. And we are invited to have the confidence of the power of God so that we can laugh in the face of evil, knowing the ultimate victor. So Peter begin, uh, begins this passage of scripture with talking about community. Now, 
it's, this is important for us to understand, like, because we talked about some really heavy issues, spiritual warfare, whoa, anxiety, yeah. Um, but he begins the whole passage of scripture talking about community, and we understand the reason for community and the importance of community when, when we have looked at what we just looked at. You cannot go through the challenges of this life without rich community. You can't flourish with the challenges that this life will present unless you have a rich community supporting you and encouraging you. And so Peter, in the, these first verses, he talks about elders, and this is like not a technical term. We have an office of elder here at Anchor, but this is really anybody in the, in Peter, in the churches that Peter was writing to that were older in the faith or were serving or offering leadership. So some of you in this church, you, you might, you know, that's you. You might be elders. You're older in the faith or you're serving or offering leadership. He, would, he says to you, if you look at those first five verses, that you are to model the life of Christ rather than religiously manipulate and that you are to serve one another rather than self-promote. This is something that leaders are called to. And then he calls the younger that are either new to the faith or aren't yet serving or not new, or maybe they're new to just that community, that they are, they are to submit to the elders. Matt and I were recently talking with uh, somebody who was uh, wrestling through some difficult situations, some, uh, some addictions, some mental health issues. And we said to each other, uh, you know, wouldn't it be easy if we could just control people's uh, behavior? You know, we could say, you have to go to celebrate recovery, you know, and, you, and we'll pay for a counselor and, and we'll journey with you. And if we could just control people's behavior, everything would be just so easy. But there's a reason why Peter says, submit to the elders. It's not because he's trying to say, oh, everybody, you need to like, you know, like be in some type of weird hierarchical thing. No, it's like that listen to their stories, learn from their wisdom, defer to the experiences that they have already experienced. The reason for this type of community is because life is hard. In fact, good leadership forms healthy communities. And over the last few years, we've learned lots of, seen lots of examples of like how bad leadership forms toxic communities. Peter's wanting good leadership to form healthy communities so that people, when they do experience anxiety, when they do experience opposition, there's a safe harbor where they can continue to find their way forward. A picture of this um, has been in my mind ever since I listened to this interview, which I think articulates this. There's probably one of the best Hebrew scholars alive is a woman named Ellen Davis, and she's a Christian. She teaches at a well-known university. And, and uh, I was listening to this interview, and at one point in the interview, she described a situation where she got the opportunity to teach uh, a room full of, um, of elderly male rabbis. Here she is, woman, Christian, younger than most of the men in the room. She's teaching them Hebrew, you know? It's like, wait. So she's keenly aware of the awkwardness of the situation. And she, so she knows and she's learned that there's one, kind of the intellectual leader of these group of rabbis that she's teaching who he always carries around his books. He's got his books that he refers to. And, and he's in the back of the class, you know, kind of like the back of the class, playing that back of the class thing. All right, I'm going to test you out. The second day, uh, he sits in the front of the class. And as he approaches her, she can see that he has numbers on his wrist. Meaning that he had endured a concentration camp. Can you imagine? He walks up to her and he says, 
you know your Hebrew. I think this is a, go with, stay with me here, because I think this is a picture of community. In a room like this, there are people that have been battle tested by life, that have seen financial failure, have worked through difficulties in the marriage, that have wrestled through addiction, that have experienced difficult, painful things in a family. And all those things happen in tandem with them following Jesus. And what happens is the tears we cry when given to Christ become precious gems of wisdom that we're able to to offer to others later in life. And so in a room like this, there there are people that have seen years that have deposits of gems of wisdom to offer to others. There are elders that are worthy of submitting to. And I just want to say to those of us who are younger, find yourself pursuing someone that has the tears that have become gems. In a culture where youth is apprised and and old age is forgotten, don't be like the culture. But pursue a relationship with someone who's older and wiser than you. And I would say for those of us who are older and have seen years and have been battle-tested by life as we follow Jesus, acknowledge like that rabbi did to Ellen Davis, the giftedness of the, of the younger. Approach those younger than you and, and point out the giftedness. Here's what happens. Is when we have elders going to youngers and pointing out giftedness and, and, and drawing out the gold, and we have youngers going to elders saying, I recognize that I need to learn from somebody great, older, and wiser than me. When those two things happen in a community, the opposition from the enemy and the anxieties of life become less powerful because the community is strong. The band can come up at this point. And I think those are fitting words for Peter to end on as he's ending his letter. He's saying, would you be such a strong community that you would have the resources to work through spiritual opposition and the anxieties of life? Every week we talk about, we we give an opportunity for communion uh, where you get to come and be physically, tangibly reminded of God's love. You take the bread and you hear Christ's body broken for you. You take the cup, and it's really just a cup with bread in it at this point, and you hear Christ's blood shed for you. What powerful words to hear. What words of advocacy for those of us having wrestled with accusation. What words of sweet relief for those of us who have been trying to carry all the challenges of the world to hear that Christ is victorious and Christ has paid it all and said, it is finished. If you haven't become a follower of Jesus yet, today's the day. Why would you miss an opportunity to come close following the one who loves you more than anyone else? Today's the day, and you can seal that by coming forward for the communion. There's prayer available on both uh, sides of the building by the black walls. And, and here's what I would invite you. If you've wrestled in any way with anxiety or anxious thoughts over the last two years, hello, everyone's guilty. We're all raising our hands consider going forward for prayer. Just even the very act of courageously walking towards those that would pray for you is an act of faith that God can use, that can deepen uh, courage and commitment. 
Take advantage of that. We sing a song here that's talking about resting on the promises of God. I want to invite you to to sing that with passion, knowing that the promises of God are stronger than whatever your newsfeed says. And as we sing that song, as we take communion, as we get prayed for, I, I want to kick us off with this, the last words of 1 Peter, where he says, and the God of all grace, of all grace, not just some grace, of all grace, who called you, he called you. You didn't have to go find him. He called you to his eternal glory, not to some kind of like cheap, you know, hotel in the sky, to his eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, he's realistic, there is suffering, but what's the point? He will restore you and make you strong. He wants to make you strong firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.